Nurses and Hypochondriacs, the podcast that brings nurse experts, patients, and hypochondriacs together to discuss hot topics in healthcare. And here is your host, Ercilia Pompilio. Bioterrorism. It's the genre that Hollywood blockbusters is made up of. It makes Hollywood a lot of money. But it's actually the natural speeding up process of outbreaks, epidemics, and pandemics. And with the latest measles outbreak in a dangerous antibiotic-resistant fungus that nobody wants to talk about, that's creeping across the globe, and Ebola possibly making a comeback? Are we under attack? Should we be afraid? Should we be very afraid? Well, today we're going to be talking about germs and, yes, bioterrorism with none other than the germ guy, Jason Tetro. He's the host of the Super Awesome Science podcast, and he's also won the podcast awards in Canada for Best Science and Medicine podcast. He's been researching microbes and our relationship with them for three decades and is a regular in the news media. So stay tuned to see how you can stay alive and not be so afraid. Nurse Backpack is a free mobile app designed to help nurses and nursing students manage both their credentials and careers. The app is awesome and very easy to use. You take a photo of your credentials, licenses, immunizations, and other documents, and it's all stored on a secure cloud-based server. The app allows you to set up two different expiration date reminders so you can get a notification on your phone before anything ever expires. Nurse Backpack will even build a resume package for you. If you input your work history and specialties, then the app will package everything together into a professional PDF for you to send to anyone, allowing you to apply to your dream job with one click of a button. With Nurse Backpack, you never have to worry about losing another document, missing a shift due to expired licenses, or keeping track of all the paperwork. The app does it all for you. Click the link in the description at the end of this podcast to download the app for free today. Welcome, Jason Tetro, to Nurses and Hypochondriacs. Oh, it's a pleasure to be joining you. Cool. I am so excited to have you on, the germ guy. How did you get into germs? Like, how did you, it's just so weird. I'm totally the opposite. I'm the major hypochondriac, but I, somehow I went into the healthcare profession as a nurse practitioner where all the germs live, you know, um, but how did you get into liking germs and making it your business? Well, have you ever had that situation where you find somebody and you just can't stand them and they just make you want to die? And then over, over time, you end up finding yourself actually liking that person and falling in love with them. Well, it was kind of the same idea with me and my relationship with germs. Uh, when I was four years old, uh, a germ tried to kill me. Um, I still don't know exactly which one it was, but I uh, had the raging fever uh, going up around 105 and, uh, you know, had to do the ice baths and all of that stuff. I managed to survive, but it really knocked out my immune system. And I was very sick. I was like that sickly kid you always feel sorry for in elementary school. Um, and then as I was sort of growing up, I started to wonder, well, how can I prevent other people 
from having to go through what I'm going through. And so I went into trying to understand these microbes, these viruses and stuff. And what I found was um, there are ways to be able to prevent it. However, they require some kind of you know, social change. And so as I was growing more and more into understanding microbes, what I began to realize was that the ones that are trying to harm us really only make up a very, very, very small percentage of the number of species that actually exist. In fact, a number of different types of viruses and also uh, bacteria, they can be good for us. So as I was developing this understanding, what became very clear is that we are, because of this war on germs, we're just not taking care of the ones that are either harmless or good for us. And so as I was developing this idea, uh, I was starting to do media. I was on television doing uh, live television question and answer, taking calls from the public. And in one particular case, uh, instead of calling me this long name, the host decided that she was going to call me the germ guy. And I thought, okay, that's kind of neat. That's, that's an interesting name. Uh, but the way that she said it <clears throat> was, and now we're joined by the germ guy. To which I turned at her and went, the what? And it stuck. So I was in the grocery store later that day, and all of a sudden, I'm in one of the aisles, and all I hear is, hey, germ guy. And I knew that was the end of it. So I've been the germ guy since about 2009. Uh, and this idea of falling in love with microbes became something that was really sort of antagonistic to what most people thought. And so that attracted Random, Penguin Random House, or Random House at the time, uh, to ask me to write a book, which I did, The Germ Code, and it was a bestseller, and it was very interesting. I wrote it in the same way that you would see uh, a dysfunctional relationship movie. Um, and it was kind of like people got it. They weren't changing particularly how they were behaving. They weren't necessarily losing their germophobia, but they got it. And so that led to the germ files, which was more of a dating guide with, for germs. This, this was actually a quote. <laughs> I love from, it. Yeah, it was a quote from the, the review in the Washington Post. <clears throat> so all of a sudden now you have this book that's giving you ideas as to how to improve your relationship with germs. And that also went on to be a bestseller. Uh, I mean, two trade books being bestsellers, you don't hear about that very often. So I was pretty happy no. about and then eventually what happened was I started, to realize, I started to realize that I could find ways to be able to share this knowledge in a, in a much broader way. And so after the, the first book came out, I started realizing, you know, I can change the way I talk depending on what we're talking about. You know, when, when uh, Ebola hit, back in 2014, I was all over the news, but I was the calm one. I was saying, you know, it's not coming here. These are the issues that we need to think about. This is where we have to really focus our attention. And if you happen to be sitting in a restaurant and someone who happened to be a pilot who flew over an Ebola country happens to be sitting beside you, don't call 911, stuff like that. So that all of a sudden changed the way I was viewed in the public as being not only this person who knew a heck of a lot and also wanted you to love germs, but also had this sort of humor about the way that I approach it. And that's really 
sort of now transcended into what I'm doing now, which is hosting the, the podcast, The Super Awesome Science Show, where we literally are having fun with science. We are taking science. We're making it meaningful to you. You're going to hear lots of stuff that truly is based in science. Quite a bit of it's from the scientific literature. But when you hear the show, it's going to sound something along the lines of what you would probably hear on radio. And maybe even if you could visualize it, something that you might see with Stephen Colbert as the host. It's very true. It's a great show. It's really entertaining. It's fun. It's not dry at all, you know, because science can be dry if you're sitting in, I mean, I remember my microbiology class way back in the day. I took, I took it once for pre-nursing and I dropped it because I couldn't understand the guy. He was a Filipino teacher. He would mumble. And all I remember him saying was auger, auger. So then I took his wife because she, it was a husband and wife team that would teach this microbiology class. And she was amazing. You know, she was more personable. She was much more fun. Yes, she was a little bit dry, but at least you could understand her and get through the class and actually learn something. But totally, your podcast is uh, very entertaining and amazing. So where do we stand now, J Jason? I mean, there's so much going on with germs all of a sudden. It's, it feels like we're under attack. It's like a bioterrorism <laughs> is actually, it, it's, it's like a bioterrorism attack almost. Um, and I wrote that article a few months ago. I interviewed you, which was great. It was very informative on what bioterrorism, I just want you to kind of go into it on what bioterrorism is and are we under attack with everything that's going on? And I think we'll get more into detail as we get into this discussion. Well, I mean, when you think about it, you've got a very, very small percentage of microbial populations that are intending to cause us harm. And an even smaller amount of those can really put our lives at risk. I mean, rhinovirus is not going to kill you. You're going to have a cold. Oh my goodness, that's bad. Um, but there are some out there that will kill you. And one of the big problems that we have is if you have the ability to mass produce that one particular killer, then there's a good likelihood you may be able to infect a very large population and then increase the potential for them to, well, die. So think about it from that perspective. What am I going to need to do in order to make sure that I have something that I can grow up en masse in order for me to be able to spread this out across all sorts of different landscapes? Well, I need someone who's infected. Not so hard. Um, I need to have a laboratory where I can essentially grow this up. It's a little bit harder. And if I want to be sure that it's something that won't be treatable, and this is really where we start getting into the you know, screenwriting as opposed to actual reality. You got to get in there and you got to start doing some genetic analyses. You got to figure out what it is that this thing can possibly acquire, what it can do so that you can't treat it. And then once you've done that, you have what it takes to essentially create bioterror. This is the stuff you never hear about. What you hear about is there are going to be bad actors out there who are going to unleash bad germs upon us and we're all going to die. Well, right. that's the thing, right? Um, if you're looking for a particular bug that can be spread very quickly amongst people 
take out certain types of populations and be sure that it's not going to resist anything, they already exist. I'm not going to tell you what they are, because <laughs> apparently <laughs> that's something I'm not allowed to do anymore. But what I can tell you is that these bugs actually do exist. Where the bioterrorism worries come into it isn't about the fact that people are going to find what these bugs are and harness them and grow them up en masse and start spreading them. What bioterrorism really is about is our inability to control nature. And so if there is somebody out there who truly has that evil, Dr. Evil mentality and finds a way to control nature, then we are all going to be at risk. So here's where you have to start thinking about bioterrorism. It's not about panic, it's about control. And at the moment, there are very, very few microbes that we truly can control. And the ones that we do have already been sort of looked at and they've been put through the ringer. You see, back in the 1970s, there was actually a conference down in Asilomar, down, down, uh, down the road from you. And they were looking at this idea of harnessing microbial ability, genetics, genetic engineering, all types of things. They wanted to put a moratorium on that because what if someone gets that control? Then we are all at risk. Well, the fact of the matter is, is genetic engineering is now responsible for so many medicines, so many advances in just general science that if they had barred it, if they had had that moratorium or if they had stopped it, we would be so much further back. And in the meantime, have you heard of any bioterrorism events as of late other than, you know, one? Well, there are a lot of stuff going on. I mean, let's look at measles. One guy comes from Jerusalem, right? And all of a sudden there's this crazy spread of measles. Right. And in the article that I wrote that that's what happens, it's like it's, it spreads like wildfire, mm -hmm. right? I mean, could that be considered an act of bioterrorism or even, you know, candida auris? that's going on that nobody wants to talk about can mm -hmm. that be considered bioterrorism uh also uh ebola i know you want to touch up upon that at the end of this but that too when ebola came out i mean was that an act of bioterrorism you could even go back to aids and hiv and people can even consider maybe that as an act of bioterrorism I mean, bioterrorism, as I wrote in my article here, which I'll reference, goes all the way back to like, what, the 600s? Oh, yeah. Uh, where people, which uh, my screen has gotten a little wacky here, but um, it goes back all the way to 600 BC with the contamination of water supply with a fungus by the Assyrians. Uh, hurling of plague-infested bodies over walls in 1346 by the Tartar army yep. and the spreading of smallpox by the British army in blankets to the Native American population. And then we had the 1984, the Rajneesh cult, and I've talked about it in another podcast, where they were dumping salmonella at salad bars and they infected about 700 people. I mean... Uh, can we consider what's going on now with all these uh, epidemics going on with measles, with the uh, candida auris, 
with Ebola bioterrorism of sorts. I mean, it's not like some, we don't even know what's going on. Is someone actually doing it? Is there an evil scientist putting all this out there? Well, I'm going to tell you that you actually forgot the most important bioterrorism event that ever occurred in the history of humanity. And that is the fall of the Roman empire. If you look back, the reason that the empire fell and went into the dark ages was not because somebody took one particular bug and used it against an entire population. All they did is they destroyed the aqueducts. Right. Now, all of a sudden, you don't have fresh, clean water. And you have lots of people who are still going to be pooping. You have lots of people who are going to be essentially unclean. And all of a sudden, you start to see diseases spread like wildfire. So... When you put it from that perspective, any attempt to reduce the ability for us to have proper hygiene, proper sanitation, proper um, uh, you know, cleanliness can be considered bioterrorism. Where this becomes a little bit more specific is when you start to see these examples of people who are using individual or mixtures of uh, you know, microbial populations to take away that ability to have the hygiene so you put the uh the fungus in the water all of a sudden you don't have fresh water uh you you put the salmonella in the salad bar and the norovirus and the chicken isn't going to be able to infect you as fast um sorry buffets they're just like crazy Um, and then so when you think about it it really has to do with not the bug itself, but our inability to stay safe. And that's essentially why bioterrorism is such a concern, because there are many ways to reduce the ability to stay safe. And we see this every single day in the place that you work. You're a nurse. Practitioner, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I just got community-acquired pneumonia, so I was coughing for three months straight. There you go. Yep. That in itself is an act of bioterrorism. The difference that we see is that I doubt someone coughed on you or sneezed on you on purpose. Correct. So in that context, you're still a victim of a bioterrorist event. However, because there was no intent, it doesn't get called bioterrorism. This is really where we have to start looking at how this bioterrorism is everywhere actually is true but in a much different context and it is up to us each and every one of us to be sure that we maintain those proper hygiene sanitation clean and and safe food regimens in order for us to be able to stay safe so that it's not just about the the big names it's about all the names of those very small numbers of microbial species that can potentially harm us That's very fascinating. Uh, So let's go into what's going on now with measles. I mean, there was an article just the other day, I think it was yesterday, how they quarantined the ship and it Mm -hmm. was all the uh, Scientologists. I used to take care of Scientology patients back in the day, several years ago, and uh, they they do not vaccinate. And I think it's coming as a surprise to people. People are like, what? Scientologists don't vaccinate. And I'm like, yeah, they don't. They kind of have their own method of healthcare. I worked for a physician who was very sensitive to their beliefs 
And, um, you know, and I practiced under him and I practiced with his philosophy and it was just all talk therapy. Like they wanted to know about the vaccines. So I would sit for an hour and tell them all about the vaccines. And at the end of my conversation, I'd be like, okay, so what would you like to do? Which vaccines would you like? And they're like, none. Thank you very much. And they would leave. So that was really all of my healthcare with the Scientologists. So now everybody's like surprised. Oh my God, there's a ship full of Scientologists that have measles. But why is this outbreak occurring? Like we haven't heard about it since about 2014. And now all of a sudden there's a spike where we're seeing it. Like from what I heard, it was a guy who came from Jerusalem. He ended up in New York and all of a sudden it just started spreading like that wildfire. We had some cases here at UCLA and they were quarantined, some students and now we have this ship with the Scientologists. Yeah. So I'm going to take you a little bit of a different path. Um, you're in California, right? Yes. Are you familiar with the I-5? The, the freeway, yes, of the course. Freeway. Yes. Of course. So let's just say it's the middle of the night. There's still going to be cars on it, and it's still going to be moving around. But the reality is there's not a heck of a lot of circulation, right? Correct. How much road rage are you going to see? Zero. Exactly. Now, all of a sudden, we start getting into rush hour, and now the I-5 is packed with circulation, correct? Correct. And you happen to have people who might get a little bit frustrated, who might do silly things like getting out of their car and standing on someone else's car, and if it happens to be a BMW, they might just drive away with the person on it. It looks really good on the news. I mean, KTLA is fantastic for people on driving on the hoods of cars. But anyway, (laughs) imagine now that a measles case is that road rage. When you don't have any circulation, what we define as elimination, you're not going to have any cases. But The minute that you all of a sudden start bringing circulation of the virus into your environment, people are going to start getting sick. And the cases, much like road rage, are dependent on your susceptibility. You may have been vaccinated, but if you have a waning immunity, you may still be infected. You are also dependent on where your immune system is at any given time. So if you happen to be weak in your immune system, if you happen to be tired, if you happen to be worn out, there's a better likelihood that you are going to catch measles. And if you are younger, and this of course doesn't apply to people who are driving on the highway, because I don't think toddlers will have road rage, could be, could be, I don't know. you're going to also see because they don't have the immune system that's there in order for them to be able to fight it off. So the key in this particular case is the circulation. When we reach elimination threshold, in other words, the ability of the virus to circulate in the general population is below what we call one, then there's very, very small chances that you're going to see cases. You'll see little pockets here and there. You might see a case pop up but you're not going to see a massive amount of outbreaking. The minute that you start to see circulation, one case can potentially infect up to 18 other people. Wow. Just imagine you're on that I-5 and you're sitting there and you are just upset because you're late 
and you know maybe the executive producer changed your script or something mm-hmm. like that and you're really not happy and then the person beside you starts honking on that horn in road rage you're going to be infected it's the same way and then that ends up infecting people very very rapidly very very quickly now put them on a boat oh my gosh <laughs> oh yeah so measles spreads faster than norovirus and we've already heard about how norovirus can take out cruise ships right right imagine what measles can do in an unvaccinated or weakly vaccinated population true and who knows what their healthcare is like and what they're eating and you know because like leah remini pointed out in her whole uh against Scientology thing, it's like, it doesn't seem like they're very healthy people, you know, mm-hmm. nothing against the Scientologists. I'm just saying I do have experience and they don't, they don't like vaccines. They don't like antibiotics. They don't want anything. They just want to talk to you. So this is from my experience. Absolutely. So. And one thing I think people really need to understand is that we do hear all the time about, you know, the religious objections. We hear about the people who have the personal objections. And then we hear about the people who still believe that Wakefield was correct. 1993, the uh, measles vaccine causes autism nonsense. Okay, so that's all fine and dandy. And if we didn't have circulation, yeah, go for it. Have fun. Be the way that you are. I don't care. Right. But the minute that you start having circulation, you got to be on the lookout for these people because they are the ones who could potentially be the patient zero that leads to an outbreak. And it's not their fault. It's just the fact that their immune systems are just not prepared enough for the measles. So this is one of the reasons why mandating vaccinations for younger generations is becoming so popular. Um, the, uh, the one that recently has gotten all the attention, I think SB 277 in, in California, Yes. Yes. There's lots of people. I have friends who were against that because they just did not want to see the mandating of vaccination because they were afraid that the people who cannot be vaccinated would end up being huddled into this in a herd. And we'll get to herd in a minute. um, And then all of a sudden find themselves having a, a, a bad reaction and therefore being, you know, scarred for life, vaccine injury, whatever you want to call it. Okay. Here's the issue. It has nothing to do with the mandate. The mandate has specific requirements in order for you to be getting vaccinated. The big problem is the word herd immunity. We need to stop using that term. It's called an elimination threshold for a reason. When you start talking about herd immunity, what ends up happening is that in the minds of the people who are worried about vaccines, they feel that they're going to be herded up just like animals on a farm. That's what it sounds like. Exactly. So that's really the problem that we're facing right now is we're using language that is too controversial and it is causing a number of people who are verifiably curious and maybe a little cautious to be grouped into uh, the people who truly are simply trying to destabilize vaccination for their own whatever purposes. I think that's an excellent point that you bring up. The issue that I have with vaccines is, number one, this is my background. I worked for a pharmaceutical company. I um, started to understand how medications are promoted, are branded, and how they're sold. I mean, it, that, it didn't feel to me that they really had the patient's best interest at heart. 
My other issue is, um, you know, I've seen the good things that vaccines can do, you know, and I do have belief in them. I do feel because of the autism rate, what is it now? One in 40 kids are being diagnosed with autism. Uh, I think that there needs to be more testing involved, maybe on these vaccines. You know, I think the government needs to have these pharmaceutical companies more accountable on their testing measures, on looking at their long-term rates, like can this vaccine potentially cause it? I mean, the debate is still there. You can't say, oh, it's safe for everybody. Not necessarily. I believe that maybe certain people with certain type of genes, they're getting mutated. You know, sometimes, and, uh, and this is just purely my, what I've seen in my 22 years um, as a nurse and as a nurse practitioner is that when I, when I get a parent in, um, and sometimes the parent you could tell is a little bit interesting, a little bit odd, they will sometimes have an autistic, a, a child on the autistic spectrum, and they'll be like, oh, it's because of the vaccines. Not necessarily. You know, I did have patients who were never vaccinated and did get out autism as well. I do believe that there's something going on in the genetic makeup that through, through the, um, how can I say this, through the heredity line, something's going on or something's getting mutated to, you know, something's happening. And that's just from my personal experience. I don't blame vaccines 100% to what's going on. I just think there needs to be more testing and somebody needs to figure out what is really going on. I mean, back in the day, people, before they got married, they would do a blood test to see if they were compatible. And now nobody does that anymore. Do you see? And I've always said that you really need to have a qualification for vaccines because we do know that there is a small population of people who simply cannot get vaccines. Thank you. Their immune system. Well, no, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I totally, this is what I, I believe in. And I don't think one vaccine is right for everybody. That's my, my whole point that I'm trying to get at. You know, I think something is going on, you know, well, but nobody's paying, nobody wants to pay attention to it or nobody cares maybe because it makes no money. I don't know. Uh, well, we can get into the farm in a few minutes, but what I will tell you is this. Um, we are becoming more and more conscious of what happens with the immune system, especially when you have different types of polymorphisms or mutations, as you want to call them, uh, in our genetic material. And as we're learning this, whether it be the immune system, uh, the metabolism system, et cetera, et cetera, we're beginning to realize that in some cases, uh, a vaccine can potentially lead to an adverse reaction that may have more than just a short-term acute effect. Okay, that's great. The question then becomes, how are you going to be able to identify those individuals who really shouldn't get a vaccine? Right, and when that mom comes to you and shows you on the consent, hey, it says here that my kid could die from this, and uh, it's telling me this, what am I supposed to do? And I'm like, uh, so now it's my job to say, oh, it's fine. Nothing will happen. Just sign it and we'll give the vaccine and everything will be okay. I can't put a guarantee on that. You know, it's now Big Pharma is putting me in this position, you know, to where I'm just, you know, and that, that happened to me a, a few months ago and I never really thought of that. And, and I was just like, 
really put aside, you know, and now I'm, I'm having to coax this mother into signing that and to tell her it's okay. I, I don't know if it's going to be okay. I don't know if her kid's going to have a reaction. I mean, is her kid, she's going to sign it. She's going to, what if the kid does have a reaction and she's going to come back to me and said, you said that my kid would be okay. This is what my problem is. Yeah. And, and I, <laughs> well, look, I, if you've ever watched CNBC and you watch the uh, financial officers, uh, even all the way up to the CEOs of numerous pharmaceutical companies. Oh, yes. I've been there. I've, they yes. they I've, talk about profitability. Oh, yeah. That's all they care about. Yeah. Now, the idea of not everybody being qualified for their product has meant that they would increase prices. And as we've learned with Shrekley, uh, that's not necessarily <laughs> the best way to go. <laughs> so what you want to do is you want to find out how are you going to be able to have a cost-effective model that can still bring profits to the shareholders while making sure that you're taking into consideration the people who simply cannot have your medicine. That's where the FDA is supposed to come in, <laughs> quite honestly. Right, but look at, okay, so I just saw a news article the other day, okay, and I read in my article again because I, I pulled an article that just came out in The Lancet in 2019 that said one of the ways to offset bioterrorism and offset all these crazy bugs that are coming in is to have more vaccines and for the FDA to push these to, um, what is it? They clear the drugs faster, you know, so, which means the testing times for these drugs are going to be shorter. Well, fast tracking still requires you to do all the testing. No, they said it's, they're going to shorten it. That's what I, I mean. It's called fast tracking. And so what ends up happening is that it takes you less time to be able to do what's necessary. Now, right. here's the thing. Do you use hand sanitizers? Of course. No, oh. not really. Never? No, I figured it's <laughs> Every once in a while. When I'm in yeah. the hospital, when I'm in the clinic and they don't have soap and water, I will use them. But I, I'm not one of those crazy people that is always sanitizing <laughs> because I do have an, I get an allergic reaction to the alcohol. Yeah. I mean, it dries out my skin and then makes me, you know, you so get hand infections and stuff. Immediately, so. you understand what I'm talking about. Well, I'll get to the, I'll get to the FDA in a second, but just let's hold on this for a second, Okay. You start using a lot of alcohol sanitizer, you start having problems with your hands, right? Now, are they going to say to you, you don't have to use hand sanitizer, or are they going to say to you, well, here's some lotion so that you don't crack? Yeah, that's what they started doing in the hospitals. They're like, okay, well, now we're going to use lotion because this is what's happening and too many people are going into employee health and complaining about their hands instead of cracking. And do you know why that is? Why? Because at the end of the day, hand hygiene compliance rates, when it comes to using soap and oh, water. Oh, yeah, it's num number, so one. Poor, number one. Okay. In hospitals. Exactly. That is the number one way to fend off any disease and stuff like that. And I will tell you, there are a ton of doctors and surgeons who do not wash their hands. <laughs> of course. And that's the thing is that we still know that lots of people don't wash their hands, which is why they're trying to mandate this idea of using hand sanitizer as a means of improving compliance towards hand hygiene. As for the people who essentially can't really be using the alcohol for whatever happens on their skin and everything like that, the fact of the matter is that 
it could be due to something that's genetic that is unique to you or unique to certain other people. It could be some other factor that's involved. But the fact is, is that when you start looking at how alcohol works on the skin, that's not the reason. In fact, the alcohol itself is probably improving the condition as opposed to harming it. It comes into contact with something else that is leading to the cracking and to the other things. The question then becomes, well, what is it on the hands that's leading to this? Is it candida albicans, which is known to be able to do that? Is it uh, propionibacterium that is a different species that can do that? Um, is it, uh, you know, a staph aureus? So again, now all of a sudden you're starting to think, oh, I'm going to have to do a swab of my hands and find out which, what bacteria are helping me to have this problem. And then you got to look at the genetics of it all. And you got to start right. thinking, well, what about the genetics? What about my Langerhans cells? What about my um, you know, dendritic cells? Are they acting in a different way as a result of my genetics? And all of a sudden, all of these issues come into play before you even know whether you qualify to use that hand sanitizer. How is that any different from vaccines? Right. It's very much the same. So when it comes to something like the FDA, what they have to do is they have to somehow figure out a way to be able to balance. Now, the FDA has been doing this with hand sanitizers, and they still haven't made their final decision yet. In fact, this has been going on since 1994, and they've deferred a final decision for at least another year because they can't be absolutely certain 100% that hand sanitizers are safe. Regardless of the fact that every study out there says that, they don't have the 100% certainty that comes from the triple level clinical testing that they require for drugs. So in a way, and this is gonna sound really crazy, a vaccine is probably safer than using an alcohol hand sanitizer. But that sounds ludicrous because at the end of the day, when you're starting to think about vaccines, you all of a sudden start thinking about the adverse events and you start thinking about the autism and you start thinking about everything that the vaccine deniers, not the people who are curious, deniers, the who are cautious, media, or exactly. you know, your friend's cousin's mother told you about exactly. it. Exactly. And that's really where the problem now lies. We know how to be sure to test for qualification for a vaccine, just like we know how to test for qualification of an alcohol-based hand rub. But how do we do that in such a way that it can be 100% certain? Well, we're gonna be able to do that with alcohol hand sanitizers. I've been, you know, I was testing them when 20 years ago. I know they're safe, I know they're fantastic, and they're wonderful. Will they ever be mandated in such a way that every single person, including yourself, has to use them 100% of the time, I highly doubt that. Same thing with vaccines. And yet, SB277 has done so as a result of public health. And now we see the quarantines up in New York City as well. Yeah, you see here, I have some stats here from the CDC, and it says from January 1st to April 26, 2019, this is on the measles, there's already 704 cases, individual cases of measles have been confirmed in 22 states, um, 78 cases from the previous week. So this is about a week ago, because this is very recent. Um, this is the greatest number of cases reported in the United States since 1994, and since measles was declared eliminated in 2000. So, yep, yep, pretty much. 
I just want to kind of segue into this new uh, drug-resistant candida auris, which they're <laughs> calling, uh, we were talking about this a little bit before the podcast, they're calling it the, um, the fungus nobody wants to talk about. I mean, it's crazy. I read this New York Times article at the beginning of April where it said this man came into a New York hospital. He had some type of respiratory infection. No, it was a stomach thing. So he had to have some type of stomach surgery. And he did, but he ended up dying and he did have this candida auris and they found it all over the room. I mean, they had to go ahead and take apart the ceiling, like the ceiling Mm -hmm. things um, because it, it was, so in there. I mean, yep. and, and this is, this is a, a crazy fungus that is uh, caused havoc in Spain, uh, many other countries, and now it's starting to come to the United States and nobody wants to talk about it. I understand why nobody talks about it. I'm going to segue into a little story that happened to me while I was sitting at a bar one day. So I'm sitting at a bar. I'm not going to say what, um, where I was, because I don't want to give this place away. Uh, And all of a sudden, there was a man next to me, and we just started chatting, and I asked him what he was doing there, and he told me he was an attorney, and he was a a type of forensics attorney, but he uh, dealt with hospitals, right? So he was always called in when they had some type of weird... Uh, thing that could potentially cause an epidemic and that could potentially cause a hospital to be sued. In this case, they found a patient had Legionnaire's disease. And so he was talking about that. And so it, it created kind of um, some drama. Of course, he was, this patient was in the um, ICU. They were trying to figure out whether he got the Legionnaires from the hospital, but it turned out he was a heroin addict and possibly could have contracted the Legionnaires from uh, a hose, like just from drinking out of a hose in the middle of the street somewhere. So that's what the they were saying it was. But he was called in just to kind of settle the waters and make sure that it didn't spread. And also it wasn't caused by the hospital, which could cause them to be sued if anybody else got the Legionnaires, which I thought was very, very interesting. So this is why nobody wants to talk about it because, you know, and in this case, uh, like I said, I don't know the man's name. He did give me his information. He did give me the hospital information. But, and I did tell him I do a podcast and I, I do do some journalistic writing. So, uh, and he did not have me phone, assign any non-disclosure. We were just chatting over dinner uh, at the bar, which was very fascinating. Things that you find out, right? Yeah. So I was like, well, this is why nobody wants to talk about it. I mean, it's PR, it's branding. Nobody's going to want to go to your hospital anymore once they find out that you have this outbreak of whatever. Yep. And uh, that's normal, to be honest. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, MRSA uh, was around. Oh, right. For- Right. Nobody wants to go to a hospital that has MRSA. I mean, that was huge. It was around for 30 years and nobody paid any attention to it uh, before all of a sudden people started paying attention to it. Uh, uh, VRSA, still definitely right. not something that people talk about out in the real world, but we all know about those vancomycin resistance. Right. In the hospital, major. Crazy. Right. Um, it's only been in the last, I'd say, four years that we've actually seen any kind of movement when it comes to... Uh, talking about different bugs that have uh, a new ability to resist uh, antibiotics uh, or, or antifungals in the case of C. Oris. 
and I, and and in a way, I think it's just simply because what has happened is the World Health Organization declared antibiotic resistance a crisis in 2014. And all of a sudden, you started seeing many of the journalists who focus on science really jumping on the ball to see what this meant. And what they found was so dramatic that they just kept on going. So it was a bandwagon. The funny thing about a bandwagon is that usually there's an end game. There's always an end in sight. But when it comes to antibiotic-resistant bacteria or fungi, there is no end in sight. They're just going to get more and more and more resistant. We're never going to come up with the magical pill, magical treatment that's going to be able to ensure everybody's going to be safe. What's going to happen is that we're going to start seeing more and more of the ones that are not just unidrug resistant or multidrug resistant, but pan-drug resistant. In other words, they're resistant to everything. Remember what I talked about from the bioterrorism a bit earlier? We have them. They exist. I'm not going to tell you their names, but they're out there. <laughs> and so as we start to increase the number of bug names that have that ability to be pan-resistant, the more likely it is the spotlight is going to be on healthcare in the, the news media and, of course, the social media. So we are definitely heading on not a slippery slope. We're basically on one of those super soaker sliders that is covered with olive oil. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, and that's where we're going. So how are we going to be able to do something about it, right? Because we know they exist. We know that people are not talking about it, but there's a spotlight on them. Well, the first thing you do is you provide a way to be able to talk about it. Because quite honestly, I've been talking about C. Oris almost seven years now. Wow. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like... So, so why now is it becoming such a, a big thing? I mean, why now is it making its way through? Is it because of the antibiotic resistance that's growing? Uh, no. Um, the reason is, is because it showed up in America. Uh, have you ever heard of uh, MDM, NDM, New Delhi, uh, Metapor, Met, blah, 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 try that again. <laughs> have you ever heard of NDM, uh, New Delhi Metalloproteinase? Um, it's, it's, it's one of those particular types of, of resistant infections. It's been circulating around in India for a very, very long time. And then it comes to England and then it came to America and all of a sudden it got all the attention. It has to do with geography. And let me go back to measles for a second here. Yeah. We know that in certain parts of the world, measles is spreading like wildfire because there's nobody. Like in the Balkans specifically, that's what they were talking about. Um, uh, I believe I don't want to say Croatia, but um, oh, I forgot. But anyway, in the Balkan yeah. states, in that part of Russia, that they do not um, they don't vaccinate at all, and that's where they were saying that that's where, where it's coming from. Exactly. So, how many people know about that here? How many people know about the cases? How many people know about the deaths and the serious hospitalizations that are resulting? Very few. Instead, 
we're worried about the 200 and some people who are outside of the Washington State Legislature saying we should say no to vaccines forever. So it really comes down to geography. Once these things show up in the states, there's a huge issue. And while it was probably epitomized with Ebola, whenever we see one of these new bugs coming in, remember colistin-resistant bacteria when it showed up? Oh my God, it's resistant to the antibiotic of last resort. Well, yeah, of course. But that's been around for years. It's just it's not in North America. Now it's here. Now it's spreading. Now it's a concern. So there's a term called rugged individualism. Hmm. And it, ref it, it ref really reflects the idea that you can't tell me what to do. I know better than you. And if it's happening somewhere else, then it doesn't matter to Affect you. me, right. Exactly. And so in North America, there's a lot of that. And unless you decide to start looking outside of your borders, you really do not have any appreciation of what the risks happen to be. And what I find most incredible is that if the United States had been on the ball, we probably would not have had the 2009-2010 pandemic. Pandemic of? Flu. Flu. Okay. On um, the ball, how? Well, the, the fact of the matter is that it started in Mexico. And I talk about this in my book, The Germ Code. It started in Mexico, but it eventually moved, probably due to birds, to California, which is where we had the, the, the starting cases. It was in children. They started spreading it. Everyone just figured, eh, flu. Okay, so, you know, it's kind of like the summer, et cetera, et cetera. Then it started spreading really, really, really fast. Now, the reports out of Mexico were already saying there was this really weird actor that could potentially be a problem. Nobody paid attention to it because it was Mexico. The minute it was in California and it started spreading, all of a sudden people got worried. But if you had been on top of the situation when it was first discovered, you would have actually had an opportunity to slow it. Um, we are now seeing this with other diseases. Now, I'm not saying that it's the worst because quite honestly... There's something going on in the Demo Democratic Republic of the Congo where there's a war going on there as well as an Ebola outbreak. So at the end of the day, it's not the worst, but open up your eyes a little more and you'll be much better at being able to identify the risks to your hygiene, your sanitation, et cetera, et cetera. Because at the end of the day, bioterrorism does not come from humans. It comes from the bugs and mother nature. Crazy. This has been an amazing discussion. Uh, totally a lot of fun. I mean, it's kind of freaked me out a little bit, but I, it's gotten me more informed. I mean, I, I'm not as, I, I'm never scared of these things because I'm always like one foot in, one foot out, you know, and, and yeah. the whole thing is just to keep your immune system as healthy as possible, to eat better. And, uh, you know, it, it's hard because there's here in America, there's so many fast food places. I mean, you're in Canada, you're in Toronto, right? I'm not sure if it's the same. I've never been to Toronto. But here it's like everywhere you turn, there's a fast food restaurant. Even if you go to the WIC, which is the government oh, provided yeah. the government provided food services, it's like yeah. they are full of milk, cheese, um, cereals that still have a lot of sugar in them. 
And here I am as a practitioner telling people don't eat those things. You know, you want to eat more fruits and vegetables, more stuff that has vitamins to boost your immune system. And they're looking at me crooked because, well, they're like, but the wick gave it to us, so it must be good, even if there's sugar in it, you know. So it's really hard. It's just you're, you're fighting. It's like, you know, there's a lot against you when you're trying to educate and trying to go forward with all of this, but. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun, Jason. And tell people where they can uh, listen to your Super Science podcast. Or We are everywhere. We are on Apple Podcasts. We are on Spotify. We are on Google Podcasts. And if you want, all you have to do is type in the words curiouscast, all one word, dot CA, or even better, just Google SAS, the Super Awesome Science Show. Head on over. You're going to have a lot of fun. And as you probably may have figured out, you're going to hear some interesting perspectives to science that you may not have heard about before. Not because it's not true, but because people just simply don't realize how much fun science actually can be. Very true. So I'm going to put the link at the end of the podcast. And thank you so much, Jason Tentro. And until next time... See you later, nurses and hypochondriacs. Thank you for listening to another episode of Nurses and Hypochondriacs. We would so appreciate you giving us a five-star rating. And don't forget to download the Nurse Backpack app. It's free. It's easy to use. It's great credential management. It's secure. It's safe. It gives you expiration date reminders, puts together a resume package for you, and you get the ability to send documents and your resume to anyone. Go ahead, download the app today. The link is at the end of the podcast notes. Also follow us at Nurses and Hypochondriacs on Facebook, Nurses and Hypocon on Twitter, and on Instagram. We're under Rogue Nurse Media. Till next time.